and I hope it makes the people of Wisconsin very angry. It made me angry, and I'm not even from Wisconsin. I hope it doesn't make the people of Wisconsin dead. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came here I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe even during pandemics on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion. Well... Um, hi, Desi Doyen. <laughs> hi. How are you? I'm okay. Are you going to blow a brain gasket there well, with anger? Well, you know, I, you have already been cleaning up my brains and blood <laughs> from the studio all day as my head has been repeatedly exploding all day long. So, yeah, on uh, yesterday's broadcast, if you happen to be tuning in, you know that just a few minutes into the show, the Republican majority on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court agreed with the Republican-controlled state legislature that Democratic Governor Tony Evers was not authorized to postpone the Tuesday, April 7 election in the state until June 9, when uh, he tried to. Uh, He attempted to do that with an executive order issued on uh, Monday morning in the wake of a global pandemic and in the wake of his own statewide stay-at-home order that he issued on March 25, barring Wisconsinites from leaving their home except for essential business as specified in the order. Voting was not one of the essential things that voters in the Badger State were allowed to leave their homes for. Nonetheless, mid-show yesterday, the uh, Republicans, the GOPers on the Wisconsin Supreme Court in a 4-2 party-line vote overturned Governor Evers' order to postpone the election, finding that he did not have the authority to do so, that only the GOP-majority legislature did, and that the GOP-majority legislature refused to do so despite repeated requests from the governor for the health 
of the people of Wisconsin to either move the election or mandate an all-vote-by-mail election, but the Republicans refused to do so in the legislature, and thus the Republicans on the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the Republicans who gerrymandered the state to hold on to majority control of that legislature, despite receiving a minority of votes in the state, they have now condemned their own state's voters to risk death in order to vote at the polling place on Tuesday. Well, short, so that news uh, from the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court came in while we were on the air Monday. And then shortly after we got off air on Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court rang in as well, overturning last week's ruling by a U.S. Circuit Court federal judge in Wisconsin, which was also subsequently, by the way, upheld by a conservative federal appeals court. The U.S. Supreme Court overturned the judge after the judge, in response to a lawsuit filed by voting rights advocates, had extended by one day until last Friday the deadline for requesting an absentee ballot from the state and extended the deadline for turning in that ballot for six days until April 13th, given the fact that the state election officials were already overwhelmed with absentee ballot requests by the time this case was heard last week. More than a million absentee ballot requests, many of which had not even reached voters by then or even by now, uh, much less uh, would those ballots have a chance of being you know, received by the voters and then postmarked or returned by the original election day, April 7. It was just impossible. The 1.2 million absentee ballot requests that had already been filed by early last week for a primary election and statewide Supreme Court election I'll get to that in a bit, uh, along with several thousand municipal contests on the ballot. That 1.2 million absentee ballot requests filed early last week is more than the number of such requests filed in the 2016 general presidential election across the state, which uh, normally processes less than a quarter of that many uh, absentee ballot requests during a, a spring election. So they were completely overwhelmed. They couldn't get the ballots out to voters in time. The federal judge said, sure, yeah, let's extend the deadline so those voters get to vote rather than lose their vote through no fault of their own. So their ballots could actually arrive in time for the election itself. People haven't received their ballots yet. Right. So while the federal district court judge expressed frustration that neither the governor nor the legislature with the power to do so had postponed the election day. He said as a federal judge, he did not have the power as well to move an election, but he did have the authority to ensure under the Voting Rights Act that the rights of voters were not abridged through, again, no fault of their own. The voters did nothing wrong here. So that, you know, they could vote and have their votes counted. That's what the federal judge did. And yes, that very conservative appeals court, the same one, by the way, that had wrongly decided years ago that photo ID voting restrictions were constitutional in Wisconsin. They agreed with the lower court judge, but not the right wing radicals in robes sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court, the stolen U.S. Supreme Court. Last night, after we got off air and a party line ruling by that stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, that federal judge and the appeals court were overruled 
And the ruling was tossed out, and thus the stolen Republican majority on the U.S. Supreme Court also condemned Wisconsin voters to die, or at least risk death, if they wish to exercise their right to vote in the state's presidential primary, in municipal elections, and yes, a statewide Supreme Court race that is also on that same ballot on Tuesday. Both sets of Republican justices uh, at the Wisconsin State Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court have now have blood on their hands, as far as I'm concerned. As Wisconsin voters were forced on Tuesday to line up for blocks and blocks and blocks to try and cast to try and cast their vote on Tuesday at the polls. Many of which uh, may be seen as death traps in nine or ten days from now. One of the reasons, in addition to the obvious fact that there is a, a, a pandemic and a statewide stay-at-home order, one of the reasons that Democrats had hoped to postpone the election is that it had been virtually impossible to find poll workers for most of the state's polling places. Last week, more than 100 municipalities said that they had zero polling places that they could open. Because thousands of poll workers, many of them elderly and in the prime target zone for the coronavirus, said that they could not work. Understandably so. In Milwaukee, the most Democratic-leaning part of the state, which usually has 182 polling places for an election like this, they had just five polling places open on Tuesday. Five. So that equates to about 10 thousand voters per polling place in Milwaukee, where voters were forced to uh, crowd into gymnasiums once they survived the lines that snaked around blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks of city streets just to exercise their right to vote. A right, by the way, that should not be a death wish. I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of been struggling with this over the past uh, 24 hours, if not more. I mean, we've been reporting on this for the past couple of weeks now, warning about exactly this day coming. I'm, I'm troubled by my own thoughts that, you know what? Yeah, those people who did not show up to vote, I don't blame them. I mean, I, I you know, I, I will never recommend you don't vote. I will defend your right to not vote if you don't want to. I think it's often a stupid choice, but here I think it was probably a reasonable choice for those people who, you know, decided that they did not want to risk their lives to cast their votes, at least in a presidential primary. But the state Republicans uh, have happily made made this a, a, a death wish. They are delighted about this in, in Green Bay, which usually has 31 polling places. That was consolidated to just two on Tuesday. Wisconsin's Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes tweeted on Tuesday morning, Good morning and welcome to the blank show. Today's episode has been produced by the Supreme Court and directed by the incomparable Speaker and Senate Majority Leader. Her uh, reference was to State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Scott Fitzgerald, both of whom repeatedly refused to postpone Election Day or allow an all-vote-by-mail ba- uh, election. And they were responsible. They are responsible 
for taking the case to the state Supreme Court to overturn Governor Evers' order to postpone on Monday. And then, yes, going to the U.S. Supreme Court to appeal the decision by the lower federal court judge to allow, simply allow, an extra six days for voters to turn in their absentee ballots to avoid tens of thousands of voters seeing their votes suppressed. Voss and Fitzgerald, however, appealed that ruling to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, in order to ensure that tens to to make certain. Make no mistake, this is this is not uh, maybe will happen. This ensures that tens of thousands of Wisconsin voters will, in fact, were, in fact, suppressed as voter suppression is now the last remaining value of the Republican Party. And if you have any doubt about that, just ask the Republicans on the Wisconsin Supreme Court and on the U.S. Supreme Court, who all unanimously all agreed with Voss and Fitzgerald that votes should be suppressed by the thousands completely unnecessarily. Or, you know, voters could try their luck and risk dying in order to vote rather than allow six more days for absentee ballots to get to voters and be returned and, and be then turned in to election officials in the middle of a pandemic. Calling it a blank show. It's FCC radio, so you know what I we'll mean. We'll call it an S show. There you go. As the Democratic lieutenant governor did on Tuesday, is a far too gentle way, frankly, to describe what these immoral monsters have now done. And I mean it. Immoral monsters. Videos and photos of lines snaking around city blocks and, and dangerous jam-packed polling, pl polling sites have, have been posted all day on, on Twitter and Facebook from various news outlets and from voters, including one photo of a man standing in, in, in what appears to be a mile-long line with a bunch of people all wearing masks, and uh, he's holding a huge sign that reads, This is ridiculous. He, too, was being far too kind. The governor slammed the uh, state Supremes ruling uh, shortly after it was issued on, on Monday night, saying that, quote, thousands will wake up and have to choose between exercising their right to vote and staying healthy and safe. In this time of historic crisis, it is a shame that two branches of government in this state chose to pass the buck instead of taking responsibility for the health and safety of the people we were elected to serve, he said in the statement. Harold Meyerson over at the Prospect decreed in his headline on all of this today. GOP justices decree capital punishment for voting. Our friend Slate uh, legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern described the right-wing U.S. Supreme Court decision this way. He said on Monday by a 5-4 to four vote, 5-4 to four vote, the U.S. Supreme Court approved one of the most brazen acts of voter suppression in modern history. The court will nullify the votes of citizens who mailed in their ballots late, not because they forgot, but because they did not receive ballots until after Election Day due to the coronavirus pandemic. As Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote in dissent, the court's order, quote, will result in massive disenfranchisement. The so-called conservative majority claimed that its decision would help protect, quote, the integrity 
of the election process. Yes, that's actually what they claimed. This was meant to protect the integrity of the election process. How? By keeping tens of thousands of people from being able to vote or by killing potentially who knows how many voters who actually took the risk and uh, st st stood in the lines for hours and hours just to cast their vote. In reality, Stern notes, it calls into question the legitimacy of the election itself. And he is right. Because voters are rightly afraid of COVID-19, he says Wisconsin has been caught off guard by a surge in requests for absentee ballots. Election officials simply do not have time, resources or staff to process all of those requests. As a result, a large number of voters, at least tens of thousands, will not get their ballot until after Election Day. And Wisconsin law disqualifies ballots received after that date. The stolen majority on the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned the only protection in place to ensure that voters could still safely cast ballots in Wisconsin. The Republican Supremes, he says, have now allowed Wisconsin to throw out ballots postmarked and received after Election Day, even if voters were entirely blameless for the delay. In an unsigned opinion, unsigned. This is how courageous these Republicans on the Supreme Court are. They did not even sign this opinion. Uh, in their uh, opinion, they cited the Purcell Principle, which cautions against altering voting laws shortly before an election. I'll get to that in a moment, too. It criticized the district court for, quote, fundamentally altering the nature of the election by permitting voting for six additional days after the election. And it insisted that the plaintiffs did not actually request that relief, which, as Ginsburg notes in her dissent, she put her name on it. In her dissent, she notes that is simply false. Ginsburg's dissent was joined by her three uh, liberal colleagues and, as Stern describes, shredded every other aspect of the majority opinion as well. Quote, if proximity to the election counseled hesitation when the district court acted several days ago, this court's intervention today, even closer to the election, is all the more inappropriate, she wrote. Ginsburg also pointed out that there is nothing unusual about extending voting beyond the deadline to protect citizens' constitutional rights. Quote, if a voter already in line by the polls closing time can still vote, why should Wisconsin's absentee voters already in line to receive absentee ballots be denied the franchise? Good question, Ruth. She is smart. Shockingly, writes Stern, the majority allege that voters who receive late ballots are not, quote, in a substantially different position from late requesting voters in other Wisconsin elections. This contention, Ginsburg wrote, boggles the mind. Rising concern about the COVID-19 pandemic has caused a late surge in absentee ballot requests. Justice Ginsburg writes in her dissent, some 150,000 requests for absentee ballots have uh, have been processed since Thursday of last week. State records indicate the surge in absentee ballot requests has overwhelmed election officials who face a huge backlog in sending ballots. As of Sunday morning, 12,000 ballots reportedly had not yet been mailed out. 
It takes days for a mail ballot to reach its recipient, she said. The Postal Service recommends budgeting a week, even without accounting for pandemic-induced mail delays. It is therefore likely that ballots mailed in recent days will not reach voters by tomorrow. For ballots not yet mailed, late arrival is all but certain. She closed with a dire warning about the threat to democracy manufactured by the Supreme Court majority. She said the question here is whether tens of thousands of Wisconsin citizens can vote safely in the midst of a pandemic. Under the district court's order, they would be able to do so. You know, the order that they're throwing out. Even if they receive their absentee ballot in the days immediately following Election Day, they could return it. With the majority's stay in place, however, that will not be possible. Either they will have to be uh, they will have to brave the polls, endangering their own and other safety, or they will lose their right to vote through no fault of their own. That is a matter of utmost importance to the constitutional rights of Wisconsin citizens, the integrity of the state's election process, and in this most extraordinary time, the health of the nation. Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her dissent. Unfortunately uh, for the nation, as Stern notes, Wisconsin Republicans decided that they would prefer to exploit the pandemic to suppress Democratic votes. Their state Supreme Court, dominated by partisan Republicans, allowed them to do so. And now the U.S. Supreme Court has overturned the only protection in place to ensure that voters could safely cast ballots, even if the state fails to provide them expediently. He says this election looks increasingly like a sham tainted by partisan manipulation. And now the most powerful court in the nation has approved these tactics. An election that forces voters to choose between protecting their health and casting a ballot is not a free and fair election. The courts may have permitted Republicans to rig this election, but Wisconsinites are under no obliga obligation to pretend that its outcome reflects the will of the people. Now, the most hotly contested race on this ballot on Tuesday is, in fact, that state Supreme Court seat I mentioned. Republicans currently control the state Supreme Court by a 5-2 to two margin. With many controversial cases during the thankfully former Governor Scott Walker era and, uh, and many decisions since then decided along strictly partisan five to two partisan lines. Well, Justice Daniel Kelly is on Tuesday's ballot in a retention election that Democrats felt they might be able to win with Judge Jill Karofsky running against Kelly on a ballot where there was a contested Democratic primary, but no similar Republican race. So Democrats felt pretty good. They might be able to uh, actually uh, flip a uh, state Supreme Court seat on this uh, on this election. Initially, Republicans had tried to game the election some months ago by moving the primary to a separate date from the state Supreme Court race in order to keep that from happening. But they were not able to pull off that fix. So this, the coronavirus, may be the next best thing for them. While Kelly 
had uh, the surprising decency, uh, Judge uh, Justice Dan Kelly had the surprising decency to actually recuse himself from decisions regarding this particular election. That's why the uh, decision to to block Evers' executive order to move the election was uh, a four to two vote instead of a five to two vote because Kelly had the decency to not participate in that. If he loses, the GOP would still have a four to three majority on the state Supreme Court. But that means Democrats are on the verge of flipping the state Supreme Court election when another right winger will be on the ballot, I think, in in 2023. So that's why this is so very important to them. So very important that they are willing to kill people in order to maintain their uh, majority on the state Supreme Court for as far as the eye can see. So, yes, clearly the stakes were very high for the Republican Party in both Wisconsin and, yes, nationally here, given the importance of Wisconsin to the upcoming presidential election after Wisconsin reportedly went to Donald Trump by just 23,000 votes out of some three million cast in 2016, the first time the state has flipped to blue in decades. And uh, this uh, with a right wing state judge's order uh, some months ago that some 240,000 voters should be purged from the rolls before the 2020 election rather than in 2021 when the Wisconsin Election Commission had planned to do so. So that's a decision that will once again come before the state Supreme Court and why it's so important that they maintain control of it. So. What is is happening now in Wisconsin is important to the state and to the nation in a whole bunch of ways. What the U.S. Supreme Court has done here is also wildly important to the nation. And as I noted on yesterday's program, all 50 states should be paying really, really close attention to this disaster in Wisconsin as they figure out how to safely hold elections this November, not to mention the more than uh, 20 states themselves that still need to hold presidential primaries next month and don't have any more uh, resources to handle an influx of absentee ballots than Wisconsin does after most of those states postpone their elections, unlike Wisconsin. As Ian Milheiser notes at Vox.com today, the U.S. Supreme Court decision carries grave repercussions for the state of Wisconsin and for democracy more broadly. The majority opinion, which is unsigned, relies heavily on the court's previous decision in Purcell versus Gonzalez in 2006, This is the so-called Purcell principle. Get familiar with this now because you are about to hear the Purcell principle cited a lot in the coming months. The court's decision uh, here, Milheiser writes, uh, cements Purcell's status as one of the greatest obstacles facing a voting right litigator today. Purcell held that courts should be reluctant to hand down orders impacting a state's election procedures, uh, a state's election procedure as Election Day draws near. Court orders affecting elections, the court warned in Purcell, can themselves result in voter confusion and consequent incentive to remain away from the polls. As As an election draws closer, that risk will increase. In other words, Purcell said, hey, try not to, if you're a federal judge anywhere, try not to make any decisions that change any rules for elections when you get close to elections. 
Now, Millheiser says there is some wisdom to this vague guideline. Voters may indeed be quite confused if, say, a wave of court orders are handed down close to an election. For example, if the U.S. Supreme Court were to declare well after sunset on the eve of an election that voters must mail their ballots by April 7 or be disenfranchised. Such an order, he said, is likely to confuse some voters and lead them to being unable to vote. There are good reasons why Purcell's warning about courts deciding voting rights cases too close to an election should not be read as an inexorable command. For one thing, the consequences of a new voting law may not become apparent until that law is actually operating close to an election day. Voting rights advocates may not learn, for example, that voters are struggling to obtain absentee ballots. Until an election is close and many voters are complaining that they have not received ballots. If courts cannot intervene under those circumstances, many impediments to the right to vote will go unaddressed. Well, apparently the Supreme Court has decided here that courts may not intervene in such cases. But, notes Milheiser, similarly, as the Democratic Party in this case unsuccessfully argued in its brief in, the, uh, in this case, court orders, court orders are not the only thing that can result in voter confusion and consequent incentive to remain away from the polls. Voter confusion and an incentive to remain away from the polls arose from the COVID-19 pandemic and the voter confusion and electoral chaos that it is causing. Until recently, the Democratic brief explained to the Supreme Court, who was not listening, Wisconsin voters reasonably expected they would be able to either vote safely in person on Election Day or through a reliable, well-functioning absentee ballot system. Those voters learned very close to the election that this reasonable expectation was wrong. And the order by the lower court judge, Judge Conley's order, uh, was an attempt to alleviate the disruption caused by the pandemic. Nevertheless, the Republican Supremes, they treat Purcell, the Purcell principle, and the warning there about last-minute election orders as something very close to mandatory, says Ian. By changing the election rules so close to the election date, the court's Republican majority claimed the district court contravened this court's precedents and erred by ordering such relief. You know, this is not even a long-time precedent. This was only 2006 the Purcell versus Gonzalez case that they're quoting as if it's a commandment from God. This conversion, says uh, Milheiser, of Purcell from guideline to something close to mandatory decree is likely to have sweeping consequences for future elections. It means that if voting rights advocates discover in the final days before an election that a new state law is disenfranchising African-American voters... Or a pandemic is keeping away most voters, federal courts now most likely will not intervene. It means that many problems are likely to be are unlikely to be discovered until Election Day itself and they will go unaddressed. In that state Supreme Court race uh, on the ballot on Tuesday, Law professor and uh, election law expert Rick Hassan of UC Irvine uh, noted recently that only 38 percent who had requested an absentee ballot in heavily Democratic Milwaukee County had returned one. 
That compared with over 56 percent of absentee voters in nearby Republican-leaning Waukesha County. So there is at least some evidence that if additional voters are unable to return their ballots, Republicans will be overrepresented in the ballots that are counted. Well, bully for the Republicans, A. Eh? It's also worth noting that if Wisconsin had free and fair elections to choose its lawmakers, Evers would most likely have been able to work with a Democratic legislature to ensure that Tuesday's elections were conducted fairly. In 2018, as we've discussed on this program, 54 percent of voters chose a Democratic candidate for the state assembly. However, Republicans have so completely gerrymandered the state that even though 54 percent of the state wanted Democrats, Republicans prevailed in 63 of the state's 99 assembly races. So essentially, Republicans won, uh, Democrats won 54 percent of the vote. And Republicans got two-thirds of the assembly seats out of it. That's Republican math. Yep. And it works. Works great for them. The court's decision, Milheiser concludes, uh, in advance of more uh, crucial decisions about our upcoming primary elections and, uh, most importantly, the general election in November, in which Wisconsin will play a key role, suggests that the Supreme Court will give the GOP broad leeway in how U.S. elections should be conducted. Why don't we just ask Republicans who should be the winner in every race? That should work out just fine. Supreme Court's all in favor of that. I know we got to get to a break here, but uh, very quickly, Sherilyn Eiffel, the um, president and director of the uh, NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, says uh, calls the decision by the Supreme US Supreme Court unconscionable. It is among the most cynical decisions I have read from this court, devoid of even the pretense of engaging with the reality that this decision will mean one of two things for Wisconsin voters. Either they risk their lives to vote or they will be disenfranchised. Purcell, she says, decided just six years ago, is treated as precedent so deeply embedded and unyielding that it cannot yield to the context of an election that is simply like no other that members of the court have seen in their lifetimes. Treating the issue in this case as a narrow technical question as they do, they're claiming they're not actually looking at whether uh, the COVID-19 merits changing the election. They're just looking at this uh, decision and saying, no, it came too late, so we can't use it. we got to throw it out. She says it's uh, treating it as a narrow technical question rather than one involving the exercise of a fundamental right amidst a frightening health crisis renders the court so embarrassingly small. She says to see the right that the Supreme Court described 132 years ago as preservative of all rights, treated so cavalierly by this court tonight, is a low moment for our democracy, adding, but still, we fight on, as do we. Quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast after this. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit if you can by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Yeah, we will. We'll be watching you on the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And theoretically, the inspectors general of the U.S. federal government will be watching, well, the U.S. government. But not if Donald Trump has anything to say about it. On Friday night last week, when uh, he'd hoped few would notice, I guess, Trump fired the intelligence community inspector general who had followed the law and reported the whistleblower complaint about Trump's attempt to extort Ukraine with a $400 million in taxpayer-allocated foreign aid in exchange for their president announcing a phony investigation into Joe Biden. He reported that, as he is required to do, that whistleblower complaint to Congress. Trump called the inspector general for the intelligence community, Michael Atkinson, who uh, was was hired for that role and appointed by Trump himself. He called him a disgrace for having done so, for having followed the law, and that he no longer had confidence in Atkinson. He was a disgrace, apparently, for following the law, requiring that urgent whistleblower complaints in the intelligence community are handed over to the intelligence committees in Congress. For that, he was fired late Friday in the middle of the COVID epidemic because uh, Trump's childish tantrums and retribution and retaliation and scorn for accountability is apparently boundless. When asked about the firing on Saturday, the whistleblower situation was the only thing that Trump cited as the reason for firing Atkinson. He said, I thought that he did a terrible job. Absolutely terrible. He took a whistleblower report, which turned out to be a fake report. It was fake. It was totally wrong. It was about my conversation with the president of Ukraine. He took a fake report and he brought it to Congress with an emergency. Okay, not a big Trump fan. That I can tell you, said Trump. Now, that, of course, is a lie. All of it's a lie. It was not fake. It was not a a fake complaint. It was not a fake report. Everything in the complaint turned out to be true and independently verifiable, separate from the whistleblower, based on hard evidence, much of which we learned uh, throughout the course of Trump's impeachment hearings, for uh, which he was eventually acquitted in a nearly party-line vote by Senate Republicans who similarly do not believe in accountability or truth or facts or decency. His uh, decision to fire the inspector general on Friday, who forwarded the Ukraine uh, scandal whistleblower complaint to Congress, uh, has sort of, well, had at least, flown somewhat beneath the radar, according to Aaron Blake at Washington Post, 
And that, of course, is due to the global pandemic and the White House conveniently announcing uh, this decision late Friday night. But Atkinson does does not want people to miss the point that this is part, he says, of an effort to undermine independent oversight of the Trump administration. And that it was because he followed the rule of law that that is exactly why he was fired. He said it is hard not to think This is the uh, Atkinson, the now fired inspector general. It's hard not to think that the president's loss of confidence in me derives from my having faithfully discharged my legal obligations as an independent and impartial inspector general. This he said in a letter in a public letter that was posted by The Washington Post. He said, finally... A message for any government employee or contractor who believes they have learned of or observed unethical, wasteful or illegal behavior in the federal government. The American people deserve an honest and effective government. They are counting on you to use authorized channels to bravely speak up. There is no disgrace in doing so. It is important to remember, he wrote, as others have said, that the need for secrecy in the U.S. intelligence community is not a grant of power, but a grant of trust. Our government benefits when individuals are encouraged to report suspected fraud, waste and abuse. I have faith that my colleagues in inspector general offices throughout the federal government will continue to operate effective and independent whistleblower programs and that they will continue to do everything in their power to protect the rights of whistleblowers. Please do not allow recent events to silence your voices, says Michael Atkinson. Well, I hope other inspector generals hear that message. If they do, however, they too will not be long for this administration, it seems. Aaron Blake notes that if you're an an inspector general, a witness uh, with derogatory information about the president or a would be whistleblower, the message has become abundantly clear. We will smear you. That is the message. So that was Friday. Atkinson responds in a letter on Sunday. Now turn the page forward to Monday. And Christy Grimm, the principal deputy inspector general at HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, she released a report on Monday finding the, quote, significant challenges hospitals are grappling with in treating COVID-19 were partially due to the federal government's flailing response to the outbreak. In a survey held from March 23 to March 27, hospital workers informed Grimm's office that they had not been sufficiently informed of the process of obtaining crucial medical supplies from the federal government's national stockpile. One medical staffer, for example, told the inspector general that the means to receive those supplies posed, quote, a major challenge and that the equipment that the hospital did get was inadequate. Grimm wrote, some hospitals noted that at the time of our interview, they had not received supplies from the strategic national stockpile or that the supplies they received were not sufficient in quantity or quality. Now, remember, she was appointed by Donald Trump himself as the principal deputy IG for HHS in January. Additionally, hospital personnel cited, quote, inconsistent guidance from the federal and state governments as a major hurdle in treating coronavirus and that it was, quote, difficult to remain current with the CDC's guidelines. Now, when I saw that story on Monday after seeing what Donald Trump did to Atkinson on Friday, I figured Christy Grimm's uh, days are numbered 
during the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing Monday evening that the uh, network still reprehensibly continue carrying. Donald Trump grew increasingly exasperated as reporters pressed him about the testing shortages that were mentioned, referred to in the inspector general's report, taking aim, uh, Trump did, at the author of the report, Christy Grimm, falsely accusing her of being an Obama administration holdover, which she was not. She was actually a career professional hired back in 1999 by the Clinton administration. She worked through the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration. So now I want to play this clip uh, from Trump as he became increasingly agitated by questioning, first from a Fox News reporter, by the way. A female Fox News reporter. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, her name is Kristen Fisher and then uh, Jonathan Carl of ABC News. But please note, Trump is, is simply lying repeatedly when he talks about the U.S. doing more testing here than anyone else in the world. He's just lying. And I hate to play his lies, at least without warning you first, that they are complete lies. Here's what it sounded like on Monday night. Despite the nearly 1.8 million tests that you say the United States has done, the Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services released a report today, a survey of more than 300 hospitals across the country. And the number one complaint from those hospitals were severe shortages of testing supplies and well, a really long wrong. wait time. I mean, it's a week wrong. or longer. And did I hear the word Inspector General? Really? Uh, it's wrong. And they'll talk to you about it. It's wrong. But this is your own government. Uh, it's, well, where did he come from, the Inspector General? What's his name? It came from the Inspector no, General. What's his name? What's I don't his know his name. Well, off the find top me of his my name. Head. Let me know, okay? If but, you find me his name, I'd appreciate it. But, sir, these are hospitals. All I can tell you is not, this: sir, we put up on the board. You're going to ask. You're going to ask the admiral. But these are we are doing. Who say that they're waiting a week or longer fine. to get their test to the results? Why? But we've done more testing so and had more results than any country anywhere in the world. They're doing an incredible job. Now they're all calling us. They want our testing. What are we doing? How do you do the five-minute test? How do you do the 15-minute test? So give me the name of the inspector general. Uh, could politics be entered into that? Follow up on, on this question of the HHS inspector general. And by the way, her name was Christy Grimm. And it wasn't so much her opinion, but they interviewed uh, 323 different hospitals. Well, it still could be her opinion. Uh, when was she appointed? When was she appointed? Uh, I'm not sure when she was Would appointed. Would you do me a favor? Let I'll, me know. I'll, I'll check. No, no, let me know now. I have to know now, John. Let me know now. Because we are doing an incredible job in testing. Uh, we are doing a better job than anybody in the world right now in testing. There's nobody close. And other nations admit this. Other nations have admitted it very strongly. Other no, nations no, are calling haven't. us, wanting to know about our testing. Let me know when she was appointed, would you? But specifically, ahead, what please. she was saying was that there had been a delay in the... Okay, thank you very much. How long has that person been in government? Uh, did serve in the previous administration. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Oh, I see. You didn't tell me that, John. You didn't tell me that. Did serve in the previous administration. You mean the Obama administration. Thank you for telling me that. See, there's a typical... Fake news deal. You asked now, me when look, she was appointed. Look, I told you when she was appointed. You're a third-rate reporter, and what you just said is a disgrace, okay? You asked me, you said, sir, just got appointed. Take a look at what you said. Now, I said, when did they, when did this person, how long in government? But, but, well, it was appointed in the Obama administration. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much. You will never make it. Jesus Christ. So uh, g give me the name. Give me her name so I can fire her. D to be clear, again, uh, Grimm, 
who is a career official. She began working in the inspector general's office in 1999 during the Clinton administration. She went on to work for both George W. Bush and Obama, and she was appointed by the Trump administration to her current role at HHS in January. Now, I can't believe, by the way, that that Kristen Fisher, the reporter, was actually. Are you sure she's from Fox News? That's what I understand. Yes. (laughs) Good for her. Yes. I mean, and it's such a simple question. He could have answered it in such a way that said, well, we'll look into that. He could have been, you know, intelligent about it, but he's not. His whole point was to, you know, smear her to say, oh, this is a partisan attack. It was with somebody who was uh, came in before I got here. Therefore, everything they do is partisan, is fake. It's a fake report. It's fake news. Oh, inspector generals. Did I hear the word inspector general? He said, well, we know what inspector generals are. They're people who keep people honest and make sure that people follow the law. So they should be just thrown off a cliff, according to the president of the United States. So anyway, I suspect Christy Grimm will be gone before the end of the month. Maybe she won't make it till the end of the week. People who do their jobs and tell the truth, if that embarrasses our man-baby president in any way, they are not welcome in this government. Well, so that was Monday night. By Tuesday morning, Trump was repeating the lie. On Twitter, he said, why didn't the IG who spent eight years with the Obama administration want to talk to the admirals, generals, vice president and others in charge before doing her report? Another fake dossier. Well, yeah, she spent eight years with the Obama administration. She also spent eight years with the George W. Bush administration. But the her report, that was fake, too. Just like the fake whistleblower complaint and the fake impeachment, as he sees it, and everything else that embarrasses him, it's all fake. Oh, yeah, the coronavirus, that was also a fake witch hunt originally. Remember that? As uh, the Post's Aaron Blake wrote yesterday, the message is clear. If you're an inspector general, a witness with derogatory information about the president, or a would-be whistleblower, the message is clear. We will smear you. But it got worse still on Tuesday afternoon. Trump has removed now, uh, as of uh, Tuesday, the federal panel Uh, that Congress created, the chairman, I'm sorry, the chairman of the federal panel that Congress created to oversee his administration's management of the $2 trillion stimulus package passed just last month. Glenn Fine, who had been the acting Pentagon inspector general, he was uh, informed on Monday that he was being replaced by a guy named Sean O'Donnell, who is currently the inspector general at the EPA. Fine. He is also a career official. He had been serving as an acting Pentagon uh, inspector general for four years. Before that, he was IG at the Justice Department for 11 years. He was uh, this two trillion dollar coronavirus emergency spending law was supposed to be overseen by the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. But late last month, a uh, number of inspector generals had selected fine to serve as the panel's chairman. But now he's no longer an inspector general. And because he's no longer the acting inspector general, he is ineligible to hold that uh, watchdog role. Uh, So, uh, by the way, O'Donnell is going to continue to be the IG at the uh, EPA, apparently, uh, even while he's the acting inspector general for the Defense Department. Fine, of course, had a a reputation for uh, being independent and aggressive. So, of course, that's why Trump needed to get rid of him. There is no accountability allowed in the Trump administration. 
in the most criminal presidency this nation has ever seen. He is clearing them out. He is purging the IGs. And that is saying something, by the way, to call him the uh, call this the most criminal presidency the nation has ever seen. Not long after George W. Bush's criminal eight year reign. No, we do not forgive him just because Donald Trump is much, much worse. This is the same criminal train. It just has a new criminal conductor. They can remove an inspector general, but they cannot remove us. Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. No time for chit-chat, Desidoyan? Nope, not at all. Sorry. All right, then let's go. Our latest Green News report. Cyclone Harold's already proven to be a deadly storm. Category 5 Cyclone Hammers, Vanuatu. Well, it is that time of year where we start to ramp up in looking at the forecast for the Atlantic hurricane season, right? U.S. officials warn of a perfect storm, a hurricane during a pandemic. U.S. oil producers struggle to survive as prices plummet. Plus, March 2020 was the second or third warmest March on record. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Now, with all of that being said, people are going to be driving paying 90 cents a gallon. Did you ever hear that? What's that, 1952 or something? Actually, no, 1952 average price was 27 cents a gallon. But other than that, yeah, weren't things great in 1952? Am I right, black people and women? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, yeah, 92 cents a gallon. I I don't know if that's going to happen this year, but uh, if it does... It's because ain't nobody buying that gas because ain't nobody driving. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Oil industry analysts warn that the world is facing the worst supply glut in history, and producers are starting to panic about running out of storage space. Dozens of U.S. oil producers could go bankrupt because the coronavirus pandemic has severely curbed oil demand, and Russia and Saudi Arabia are flooding supply in a battle to control market share. President Trump has attempted to goose oil oil prices and oil stocks by claiming Saudi Arabia and Russia are on the verge of an agreement. But Reuters reports that neither will agree to reducing their own production unless the United States agrees to cut back, too. (laughs) So when he says they're on the verge of an agreement, it's Donald Trump making stuff up as he does. Exactly. So far, U.S. drillers have refused to cut their own production. In a White House briefing on Sunday, Trump acknowledged that his actions to increase oil prices 
to help the industry will hurt consumers with higher prices. Well, who cares about consumers? The oil company's got to make a living, man. They're the ones who are paying for his campaign. In other news, the European Union's climate agency Copernicus announced on Monday that March 2020 was either the second or third warmest March on record. Make up your mind, Copernicus. It was statistically tied with March 2017 and March 2019, but it was still below the record warm March of 2016. See? Global warming is over. NASA and NOAA are expected to reach similar conclusions when they release their analyses in coming weeks. Tropical Cyclone Herald slammed into the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu as a powerful Category 5 storm on Monday after killing 27 people in the nearby Solomon Islands. Vanuatu was already under a state of emergency due to the coronavirus, but island officials say they had no choice but to relax directives like social distancing as storm evacuees were crowded into shelters as the storm approached. Not good. No word yet on damages in Vanuatu. But Vanuatu is a reminder for U.S. officials. The U.S. will still be battling the coronavirus outbreak when the Atlantic hurricane season officially begins on June 1st. Colorado State University is predicting a more active than usual hurricane season. 16 named storms, 8 believed to become hurricanes, projecting that 4 will become hurricanes of Category 3 or higher. A hurricane landfall in the United States during the pandemic would strain state emergency resources that are already stretched thin. Officials are struggling to plan for potential mass evacuations and crowded shelters. Wilmington, North Carolina, Mayor Bill Sappho told USA Today, quote, absolutely, that is our nightmare scenario. It would be the perfect storm for all of us. Well, given everything that's going on, I can't see how we won't get the nightmare scenario at this point. The New York Times reports that water shortages are a growing problem around the world, affecting hospitals dealing with coronavirus in developing nations and impacting one of the most important tools against the coronavirus, hand washing. The New York Times reports families in Syria are facing the pandemic in refugee camps with little or no running water. And here I thought Donald Trump was one of the most important tools against the coronavirus. Keeping the electricity on is crucial with much of the nation under coronavirus stay at home directives, but in New York State, electric company Con Ed announced on Monday that 170 employees have tested positive for COVID-19 and three utility workers have died. New York's electric grid operator is now requiring essential power plant employees to live on site indefinitely. Electric, water, and nuclear power plants in other states are now studying whether to require their plant operators to do the same. Finally, there is a bit of good news. Renewable energy beat coal for generating electricity in the United States for the first quarter of 2020. According to the Institute for Energy Economics, that's the first time that's ever happened over a full three-month period. I thought renewable energy was just a boutique energy. Isn't that what they used to tell us? (laughs) Yes, that is. Not anymore. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Joyner. And this has been your Green News Report.
Right on. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And I can't thank the folks who have done so enough uh, lately uh, for doing so. Thank you. We, uh, my apologies, by the way, I said we'd have uh, Governor Don Siegelman on today. Thanks to what happened in Wisconsin, we've had to shuffle things around. We will uh, reschedule the governor very soon, I hope. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Ooh, the people.